It's really a privilege to be here today. I've been looking forward today for a number of months now. And I must confess, as I was, as I was coming in last night, I've been here looking on the clock just a little bit less than 12 hours. And I found myself thinking, Asbury has really welcomed me as a student. Because in looking forward to this for the last few months, and then yesterday coming from Philadelphia, I found myself, much like a student, will I ever get there? Will it ever happen? I've been waiting, I've been preparing, and will I ever get here? And then very much like a student, last night, as I was watching the weather, once I got here, I found myself, will I actually ever leave? <laughs> and is this going to be a long-term engagement in Wilmore, Kentucky? At the same time, in seriousness, I stand here today in attention. Attention a bit similar to one that John Wesley would have felt. A man with a foot in the Anglican world. I attend an Episcopal church where we live in Philadelphia. And a man with his foot in this new movement, the Methodist. I'm a member of a Wesleyan church in Michigan from where I grew up and active in the Simpson Park Camp Meeting Association. While this is attention, it has allowed me to experience and our family the fullness of what I think Wesley is about. It's a rich tension where worship and renewal is very deep. And it, an additional tension that I bring that very much reflects the beginnings of this movement. I am not ordained. I am a layman. And I stand here this morning speaking to those who are ordained and seek to be ordained. But I would like to think not simply a layman, but as one like you has been called and whose life has been transformed. Early Methodists brought their skills to the Lord as a part of their offering for use for the glory of God. They often did not have money and they frequently lacked position. Of what they had, they gave. And in the words of Martin Luther, we are all called to be little Christ. And as we go about our lives, the Methodists lived that every day. I've struggled over the years. What does it mean to be called? Does it mean that I need to be a missionary? Does it mean that I need to be a pastor? What does holiness look like when it's lived out in the office or the factory or the computer store? The understanding I, on this I, that I believe was a part of our past beginnings is not preached or communicated as frequently as it once was. For a number of years, I was on the staff of a mission organization, and while I was in those circles, I was considered called. People saw me potentially as a missionary. But then when I stepped out of that role, I began working in business. I remember a dear friend saying to me, Dwight, why did you leave the ministry? And I struggled with that. I struggled with that because of in all my upbringings, in all of the things that I'd learned over time, I did not know how to answer the question. Maybe I had. Maybe I had stepped out of ministry. As Methodists, we do not have clear boxes that have answers to them. We have truths that we hold together. Sometimes these truths feel like they are intention. 
Wesley encouraged these tensions, whether it was grace and love from a theological standpoint, whether it was the Anglican church or this new movement, the Methodist, indoors or outdoors. And I believe the call of the clergy, and if you will, the call of the laity. Do we worship when we work? I wondered about this for a long time because I grew up in a world where there were those that were called and those that it appeared who were not. I was puzzled because in the circles where I grew up in Michigan, to be a pastor or a missionary, you were called. And if you worked for General Motors or Ford, you had a job. And if you worked with your hands. But the message of the church, by its neglect on the topic, was that you were not called. As I have thought about this, I hate to say that I think part of the reality of so many of our so-called Rust Belt cities and the problems that they face is that many people in the churches in those areas do not realize that they can make a difference. Their churches are silent on the topic of their call and for that matter, any inhumanity that may exist in the workplace. Our text today comes from a group of verses that I encountered a few years ago. They helped me understand what I would call a heresy that has perpetuated and I think should not exist. Bezalel and in his apprentice, Oholiob, were described as being full of the spirit and craftsmen with their hands. If you will, there was blessing in their hands. There was blessing in their skills. A tragedy of the modern era is that we took the craftsmen, the ones who hammered out the shoes for our horses, made the furniture from wood and built our homes by their hands, and instead of calling them craftsmen in the modern era, whether it was on the assembly line or in a factory, they became laborers. The church in its silence affirmed this change. The workplace became hostile and those chosen with the call became select and the rest the rest were left to put money in the offering plate. When I look at John Wesley, which has always fascinated me about early Methodists, there was a place for everyone. Everyone who was truly seeking God. The structure of the Methodist movement was that those who had been disenfranchised without land, without education, and for all practical purposes, without church, found places of belonging. It may have been the holy clubs, it may have been the class system, but in each place, they were welcomed with a new place of belonging and they were welcomed in their dignity. Bezalel and Oholiam were skilled with their hands. What, what, is that, what does that mean to be skilled with the hands? We can use words like excellence and ability. Their work is noble because of the quality that is inherent in it. And these two men, as they were building the tabernacle, were described as craftsmen. Today, Few of these people in these trades are perceived to need advanced education or described as filled with the spirit on their business cards. But in that day, as craftsmen, they were given the highest praise and noted for their work on the tabernacle. And let's just touch on this tension a little bit. Just before the verses that Brian read to us, we hear about the creation of the calf, the golden calf. I would make the case that the people trusted in their hands and missed the tension of trusting in the God who made those hands. Now the other interesting thing in the, at the end of the verses, 
is once that got back together, in a sense, trusting God, worshiping with their hands, and trusting the God of the hands, as the offerings came in, there was so much, they had to say, stop. I don't know about you, but in my lifetime, I have never been in a church. I have never been in an organization. I have never been any place in ministry where a pastor or a leader said, please, ushers, stop. Please, stop putting money in the offering plate. Never happened. Love to be a part of one of those services. I think that in this tension, there is a beauty. There is a blending that God comes, that when God comes in at, and something happens. Over the last couple years, I've gotten to know a man by the name of James Starkweather. James Starkweather is a pioneer in the state of Michigan. He came to Michigan from Connecticut prior to Michigan becoming a state. He's a fascinating man because he traces his roots back to the early settlers. They came 1640 to Massachusetts, went to Connecticut, then uh, it's kind of spread out between Pennsylvania and New York. I don't know if James ever went to college. I'm actually not even sure um, if he went beyond elementary school. But as I've gotten to know him, I found him to be a rather remarkable man. He was skilled with his hands. He was thoughtful in his mind, and he was filled with the Spirit. James married Roxana, and as farmers, they lived on a farm their whole lives. He and Roxana raised a family together, nine children, eight of which got to adulthood. Roxana was a strong person of faith. James struggled to trust God for a number of years. He had a mother who prayed for him, and his wife was godly, prayed in every way, but it just never stuck. And then, and then on March 14, 1838, at the age of 37, after several weeks of struggle, he laid awake at night in his home in Romeo, Michigan. He was in prayer and he was diligently seeking God. He cried out to God during the night. He had been talking to some friends who talked about this wonderful salvation, but it just wasn't there for him. And so during that night, March 14th, he called out to God again, and God met him in the early morning hours, and in his words, his words, he was born of God. He was so excited that that next morning, he took his horse, he hitched it to his wagon, and he went all around the countryside there in Romeo to tell his neighbors and his friends about this wonderful Savior and how they could have this too. He thought it was possible that he could convince anyone that they could come to Christ. James went on to live a very long life. He was a generous man, and throughout it, he had a heart to reach souls. Just before James died, he was at a prayer service where they were making a decision to hold extra meetings to call people to salvation. He said, it seems to me as though the salvation of Romeo depends upon having some extra meetings. Some of us cannot do much, but God will raise up laborers, and I believe that great good will be done. I went into great detail on this story because here is a man, a simple man living in rural Michigan. And as the old Paul Harvey used to say, now the rest of the story. He sold a corner of his farm, about seven and a half acres. 
And that land is the beginnings of what today is the Simpson Park Camp Meeting Association where I serve on the board. And in this year, that camp will celebrate its 150th anniversary. As you look at the history, early days, his kids, his son-in-laws, his family was actively involved in the camp. And as a matter of fact, we, we got a record from the 1800s where they had preparations to care for 1,000 horses on their farm, which was adjacent to these grounds. He was also actively involved in the Romeo United Methodist Church, which this year is celebrating its 190th birthday. He was a class leader there. This church is still strong and vibrant today. And the home that I described to you where they raised their family and that he was involved in building, and it's built in 1834. That home still stands today. And, and actually, just this last couple years, the camp has purchased this property. Here we have a farmer living on the great frontier in Michigan, a layman who served God with his whole life. The seeds that he planted for God are still bearing fruit today. What he built with his hands still exists, and dare I say, ministering today. Now what's fascinating to me about this story is that I've done extensive research on the genealogy of the Starkweather family, both before and after. Here's what I found. Farmers, mothers, fathers, lawyers, laborers, someone who worked or uh, someone who served in the Civil War. Here's what I didn't find. I didn't find any missionaries, and I didn't find any pastors. I found a family that had a vibrant faith that was passed on at least to the next generation. We don't know. We kind of lost touch with the family. But here they were ministering with their hands, doing what God had given them to do and making a difference in a community. James built things that he hoped for and are still standing today. Excellence in quality, ministering by their presence. I believe that in the practice of John Wesley, that John sought to hold faith and work together among the Methodists, and today, by our practice, we have denied that tension. We want nice, clean boxes. We want places where everything fits neatly so we can cut one thing off from another and have clear lines. Wesley, in his insight, recognized that life is full of tensions, and there are opportunities and there are problems to be held together. There are beliefs that are held that seem contradictory. Here is our work. It provides for us each day and our faith to live for eternity. And it is held together in our lives as part of our worship. Today on this campus, there's a number of guests and there's a number of professors. And we're coming together to look at this aspect of work and Wesley. And what does it mean to be lived out in our lives today? And my hope is it's not simply a group of words that we gather and that we put down in a book or something, but it's actually something that becomes a liturgy of our lives that is lived, lived as we carry out what we do. And it's very much this tension. These things are held together as part of our worship. I have a hope. I would like to see people of faith living out their faith as part of their work in their worship. And in that, make a difference in their communities by what is made by their hands, created in their minds, and produced in our factories. 
I think it would affect everything from how food is served in our restaurants to how our homes are built. I believe that part of what is necessarily not only in America but around the world is for people of faith to once again recognize the tension. The tension of their work and their faith. It's not one or the other, but it is both for the glory of God. What if, what if the auto workers in Detroit, Kentucky, Ohio, around this region said, I am called and I build this car for the glory of God? What if the engineer at the factory in Ohio said, I am called and I work for the glory of God? What if the cook in the restaurant in Lexington, I would say Wilmore, but there's not so many of those here, um, this food is prepared for the glory of God? What if the strategist in Silicon Valley said, what we design is for the glory of God? What if the farmer who grew things in the field said, we grow this for the glory of God? What if that financial executive at Fifth Third Bank said, we run this bank for the glory of God. If that occurred, I believe we would transform our cities because we would recognize that worship is a part of everything we do. It would affect the quality of the product, the work atmosphere, maybe the price, the presentation, the environmental impact, and even the packaging. I live in Philadelphia, and we often go out to Lancaster County, which is nearby, and there's a butcher there that we like to go to by the name of Stolfus. And Stolfus makes amazing hams. And a few years ago, I had the opportunity to, mix, to meet Mr. Stolfus and said, we love your hams. What do you bake into each of your hams? He said, Dwight, we bake a celebration. Because we know when this ham will be eaten, people will be celebrating and families will be coming together. And I want the ham to be a part of that celebration. And so as we prepare these, we bake a celebration into every ham. There's a furniture maker that I know in Grand Rapids by the name of Joe Jupe. And was going around his plant where they make furniture. I said, Joe, love what you do. What is it you build into your furniture? He said, Dwight, all of our furniture is honest. He said, what do you, what do you mean, honest furniture? He said, if it's a 90-degree angle, it's a 90-degree angle. It's not 89, it's not 87, it's a 90-degree angle. If it's hardwood, it's hardwood. And furthermore, there is quality in what you see, and there's quality in what you don't see. We build honest furniture. In our preaching and in our teaching, we have an opportunity to call the people in our churches to live with the tw twin pillars of being a craftsman for the glory of God and being full of the Spirit, and to hold those together in tension. It will make a difference in our communities, a difference in our churches, and a difference in our witness. One of your own here, John Oswald, in his book, Called to be Holy, talks about holiness as a gift for others. It is never for us. As we are holy, it is about a relationship with God, and it's also a relationship with others. He says, like the manna in the wilderness, if we try to keep our holiness for ourselves, it will grow sour and rancid in us. But if we have learned Isaiah's lesson that holiness is not an end in itself so that we can revel in our own purity, but is for the sake of others, then our lives will be like the widow's jug of oil 
which kept pouring out in an ending stream of bright, pure oil. Then we will be free, free to serve, free to give, free to be self-forgetful. Then we will have begun to realize the purpose for which God has made us. Then we will know that we must be holy because I am holy is not a demand, but a wonderful offer. There's nothing, um, there's nothing like driving across the South and listening to preachers on the radio. Um, a few weeks ago, when Brian said, Dwight, what's the title of your sermon? I'd, I'd kind of thought things out already, Brian, but I, to be honest, I didn't have a title at that point. And I was listening, uh, I was driving across South Carolina, and a preacher came on, had two biblical names. It was either Paul David or David Paul, but he made a big deal about that he had, you know, one was Old Testament and one was New, and I don't remember which was which. And he said, my sermon today on marriage is once, twice, three times a lady. And I'm going to speak on marriage today. And I thought, wow, what am I going to do with that? And you know how something sticks in your mind? I had to have a song for the title. And so I find myself thinking, working my way back to you. Lord. <laughs> With a burning love inside. It's not through our deeds that we earn our salvation. But we do have an opportunity to love God and show that love through our work. In the words of Abraham Kuyper, every square inch is mine is the word of God to his children. And he wants us to cultivate and, dare I say, love with a burning love inside the work that we have been given to do with our hands. It is through our work that we make ourselves useful to others. And in that usefulness, we love, we care, we share, we give, we create for the glory of God. And our work is one important aspect of what it means to be holy. We show honor to God by what we create and how we live. It is a part of tending the creation. Our work is a part and parcel of whom and what we were made to be. As a pastor, what does it look like when you respect and honor the call of the laity in your church? What does it mean to honor their call as you, in a sense, honor your own. All that we have is gift. We all have the role and the possibility of flourishing in this world with the help of God. May we, as priests, as we all are, as we all are, bring our gifts before the Lord with love, deep thanksgiving. Amen. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for this community of faith. May out of all the gifts that are here, all the gifts in this community, all the gifts in the communities that they represent,
may these people be ambassadors to help in the fullness of the flourishing so that those gifts may be used for your glory and honor. We pray that, Jesus, in your name.